Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to How to Eat an Elephant. <laughs> I am your host, Ian, joined by my co-hosts, Megan and Emily. Hello. Hi. <laughs> and today, our wonderful and glorious task is to reminisce about the wonderful book we've just read. <laughs> hey, it's Hugo. We did it. We made it. It is over. What do we think of this great novel? And I think how I want to get into that question is to ask you this. What were you expecting when you picked up this elephant of a book? Mm -hmm. And how did Hugo's novel challenge or overturn or surprise your expectations? Mm, that's a good question. I I'll start. Yeah, you start. Let me give, give me just a minute to chew on that. Yeah, you got it. You got it. I, based on the reputation of this novel, was expecting for there to be, oh, I don't know. 50 pages or so of detailed explanations of the layout of Paris's sewers. Oh yeah. Because this is what people say, right? That book is really, really long and man, the sewers, I mean, the story's fine and stuff, but the sewers, hmm. I was shocked to find that the, that the actual explanation of the sewers that wasn't plot oriented, right? The actual explanation of the sewers was like what? 10 pages or something. <laughs> I mean, it was yeah. very, it was very short. And I also thought it was very thematically appropriate Purposeful. and interesting. Yeah. That was surprising to me. Do you think that that was made better by contrast with Tolstoy's War and Peace and how like 50% <laughs> of that novel was about the philosophy of history? <laughs> no, I'm just getting a vision of Shad who told us this at the end of our last podcast. Like, if I hear this phrase one more time, I'm going to go jump off a cliff. <laughs> Don't do it, Shad. Just then. We love you. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> our, our audio editor, Shadrach, uh, is rolling over in his grave right now. I think what I was surprised by, what was counter to my expectations in this book, was pretty thoroughly based in our understanding of War and Peace. I was expecting, since Hugo and Tolstoy were contemporaries, for this uh, novel to have the same flavor and tone, the same like deep, significant, long passages about history and the philosophy of history, right? But in the Waterloo section, I was pleasantly surprised by passages like this. He says, we leave the historians to their struggle. We are merely a distant witness, a passerby on the plain, a researcher bending over this ground steeped in human flesh, perhaps taking appearances for realities. So in our opinion, a chain of accidents overruled both captains at Waterloo. And when destiny, that mysterious defendant, is called in, we judge like the people, that naive judge. His tone of humility, like we can't understand all of the events, and so we're not going to try. Our story is more personal. I appreciated that, and it was unexpected in contrast to Tolstoy's uh, hubris, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, for me, I think that I tried to read this book a couple years after graduating from college and got stuck in the beginning of it. I didn't. I was only familiar with the musical 
and was like fairly new to the musical at that point and opened it. And here was this long section about Bishop who I did, who didn't seem to have anything to do with the story. Then there was the whole with the coin, uh, who's the little boy, uh, Petit Gervais and that. And for some reason, I didn't understand that Jean Valjean was the character and I just, I was so confused the first time I tried to read it. And that was probably just college burnout because going back to it this time, it all made complete sense. <laughs> but also that may, might be the joys of talking about it with other people. But mm-hmm. I thought that it was, I was pleasantly surprised by how readable it was. So I guess I'm saying the same thing as you guys. The other thing that shocked me <clears throat> to your point is there were so many more characters I understand that when they write a musical adaptation, they have to slim things down and fit the presentation into a couple of hours and all of that. But there were some really important characters to Hugo that he spends a lot of time with that we didn't get in the musical. And that was surprising to me. Like, For who, example, like, who are Marius's, you thinking of? Yeah. Marius's grandfather. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For starters. And it, I mean, he's there is an important sense in which he is one of the linchpins of the of the novel. He's totally. he is a guy that straddles these two eras that form the political substructure of the novel. And he he gets a voice in both of those camps, right? As his conversion, I think we can call it a conversion. The conversion in his character allows him to speak to, to both of those worlds and represent both of those worlds. And I, I, could, I can sense when I read it that Hugo loves this character, that maybe even this character is a little bit of a stand-in for Hugo in his role as an observer. And I'm shocked that they didn't mm-hmm. include that in the in the musical adaptation. That's fascinating. I, I had never thought of this before, but now that you mention it, Monsieur Mabeuf is also absent from yeah. the barricade scene. It's it's purely a revolution of the young man mm-hmm. rather than um, having any representatives from a previous era, which yep. I think makes the struggle that we see less universal and more particular. And yeah. that's a choice that I hadn't noticed before on the part of the directors. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and we don't really get a sense of the scale of the revolution or its importance in history. And that's, I mean, what are you going to do when you only have like three hours or what have you? Right. It's uh, there's a sense in which if you're just watching the musical, you it is easy to get confused and be like, where are the guillotines? Isn't this the French Revolution? Right. Because (laughs) there's no way to situate yourself in, in history with what this means in the way that this sits between the French Revolution and the and 1848, the eventual uh, transition of France into a republic, right? You're right. And I agree. It is difficult. And I actually, when I was a little kid, thought we were talking about the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. And confession time, when I picked up the novel, I still thought we were yeah, talking no, about me the too. French Revolution. <laughs> that, was, that was absolutely what I thought we were going to read. And it, was, I, it took me a fat minute to place myself as a reader in the pr- proper time period. But I do think that it's essential to the novel that the era that he's talking about and the particular uh, political trends that he's talking about, which leads me to this question. The 19th century, what defines it, according to Hugo, go? And that, that's a really big question. And I understand that it might be a little overwhelming even, but um, <laughs> but it's so clearly what he's writing about. And yep. It's his project, so, whereas Tolstoy wanted to write about history and its <laughs> philosophy in general. We're just going to say that was well done. It can fit that yeah, yeah. See, <laughs> How many times can we say this? Um, 
Hugo is kind of zeroing in on the particulars of his century and even France in that era. Uh, so it is a more particular project in that way. I have a question for you guys. You guys were homeschooled. Did you spend time <laughs> studying the Napoleonic era and its consequences in no. Europe? No. I, I mean, I remember a lecture or two about Napoleon. I mean, it's not that we didn't know who Napoleon was. We, we were was. schooled generally. Well, I guess what I'm saying is I that was not in any of the curriculum I encountered. I went to a couple different schools and we never, the history book never covered Napoleon. So I feel like I've been getting like a, a backwards looking education, right. filling in some gaps. It felt like it was like um, civil war. Uh, I had a very American centric history. Now that I think about it, it was like American civil war, uh, something about how in England there's like the industrial revolution. And then all of a sudden it's world war one. <laughs> My experience too, is like when you get to that stage of history in your junior high class and then again in your high school class in the cycle of, you know, homeschool curriculum, you're pressed for time. Mom spent too much yeah. at the beginning <laughs> of the year really diving deep. And now we're like, we got two weeks. We got to get this done. So, yeah. you know, we, we never spent more than about a week on both world wars combined. Like, <laughs> yep. Right. That's and totally never, true. never got to the Cold War. It was always in the right. back of the textbook. But and this nobody to talked throw... to me about right. Vietnam. <laughs> I appreciate that that happened to you too, though, because I don't, I don't want to throw Missy, our, you know, our mother under the bus. Right. She did a good job. <laughs> History was awesome. I loved it, but we were pressed for time at the end, which I, I think happens think to every teacher. Yep. I think so too. Yeah. I, I, everything I know about the cold war comes from reading literary novels later. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> so it's shocking then you're saying when lines like this pop up in Hugo's novel, he just takes this for granted. That day, Waterloo, the perspective of the human race changed. Waterloo <laughs> is the hinge of the 19th century. And you and I are like, what? We missed it. I was just going to tell that story. Oh my goodness. Oh. When one of our closest relatives read this novel she was or actually it wasn't this novel it was the tale of two cities it was a Charles tale of Dickens. two cities yeah which is which actually is about the french revolution. revolution yeah 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 <laughs> but she never she never heard of it before and so she she puts down the book and she goes this went down in france and i and no one told me like <laughs> i had no idea i had no idea no i feel that way a little bit as well but i but i guess this leads me to another one of the things that i noticed and was struck by as we were reading Napoleon looms really, really large for, for Tolstoy in War and Peace, obviously being one of the principal characters, but over this century, like he, mm -hmm. he was a diminutive dude, but his, <laughs> he had an outsized impact on the politics, not just of his own country, but of Europe at large. And the repercussions are still felt in the way that the artists talk about it. And so I don't know that his statement about Waterloo is an overstatement, although we did poke fun at him for saying some grandiose things but given what you just said and i think you're right so uh napoleon stands for well so the revolution is like the democratization of the nations but napoleon steps in as emperor but he still is spreading these kind of like enlightenment i guess progressive ideas about education and yeah 
human rights, etc. But Waterloo, he's defeated. He didn't win the war. Sorry. Yeah. No, what you're thinking. <laughs> anyway, why is it that Napoleon's defeat is actually the hinge of the 19th century? Especially since Hugo seems to think that there's progressive action taking place through the rest of the century. Mm-hmm. I think, and this is obviously just one tiny quote from a gigantic thousand page novel. The section that I was reading to you before about Waterloo being the hinge of the 19th century may elucidate that a tiny bit. The passage continues, this disappearance of the great man was necessary for the coming of the great century. One to whom there can be no reply took it in hand. The panic of heroes can be explained in the Battle of Waterloo. There was more than a cloud. There was a meteor. God passed over it. So he hmm. seems to be answering Tolstoy and Tolstoy's conversation about the great man theory of history and saying the linchpin of the 19th century is the explosion of that theory. Hmm. God's hand of destiny rather than the great man theory of history. He seems so to they be agree having some on that kind point. of conversation. Yeah, I think they agree. That it's uh, there was something inexplicable and humbling to human mm-hmm. nature that went down in the person of Napoleon that shattered some ideas in the 19th century. So is it that the in theory power is transitioning from the great man to back to the people? I I mean that's that, what I saw him saying. Yeah, I guess what I wonder though after reading this whole novel is if that's true, and it's interesting to me that he chose this moment to say that if that is what he's saying because it fails right i mean this uprising mean? by the people fails mm. oh in this in the, in oh, in his that. story in the details of this novel the uprising by the people actually fails and so to me it feels like if we're contrasting the two novels to me it feels like hugo is way more interested in the side of so- of the sovereignty of god the side of providence than Tolstoy is. Tolstoy mentions it and includes it, but his scope is so much broader. And mm-hmm. Hugo comes in and says, mm-hmm. there's a way that we want to look at history and look at ourselves maybe as actors in it in order to explain it, in order to set down trends, in order mm-hmm. to provide ourselves with context. And that's ultimately ineffective because what's always happening is the activity of providence in individuals' lives. Mm-hmm. And that's actually m- what moves history along. And it would be fun to get them in a room and watch them go right. to about it because I don't know that they disagree underneath the surface, but Hugo's novel feels more personal to me than War and Peace did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because all those things he said, I think Tolstoy would say too, it's just interesting. He chose Providence's victory in Russia, the mm-hmm. people uh, some the spirit moves the people to defend Russia, and as a result, Russia takes Napoleon out of its country. Uh, whereas Hugo seems to be talking a little bit more about the adverse work of God. He's mm-hmm. fixated on a moment that appears to fail, but he would argue was actually like a, preparatory, a success, preparatory success. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a scene that we we talked about a lot in the in the War and Peace podcast where Pierre looks up into the sky and sees a comet. And when Hugo used the image of a meteor being a representation of destiny passing over a providential Mm -hmm. hand, I couldn't help but feel that it was a direct conversation Mm -hmm. with that other great work. I think this came first. Right. 
So maybe Did Tolstoy's it? I don't doing know. that. We should, I guess we should look that up. <laughs> <laughs> I got uh, it. Keep talking, Megan. Okay. <laughs> if we're right that there is a conversation between the two novels, then it's really intentional when Hugo does things like compare his main character to Napoleon or compare mm-hmm. his main character to Christ and make a direct connection between a providential hand and an individual. That happens a lot in this book. And I wonder if it's exactly what Ian just said, that the individual is the scope of his project rather than Paris at large, all the French people, you know, Hmm. not national, even though he does talk about that as well. But his project is much more individually focused. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to Mm -hmm. say. I completely lost my train of thought. Ian, did you check that date? I did. I checked the date. They're five years apart and War and Peace comes second. 1862 is Les Mis and... 1867 is war and peace. So I, I don't think we're, I don't think we're off base in saying these guys are talking to each other. Well, I know for a fact that Tolstoy deeply admired Hugo's work. So they, they probably had some kind of artistic connection. That is fascinating. I think, yeah, Megan, I think that's interesting with the, why is it that Hugo takes these grandiose figures like Napoleon or Christ and puts them in Jean Valjean really is the one who carries both of those throughout the novel. I love the idea that that has to do with making the individual, the, the, the work of the individual in history important or significant in some way. Yeah, I agree with you to that point. It was, it's interesting to note. And I think it moved our discussion along um, throughout the novel that Valjean does stand for both of those things. He stands as an image of Napoleon, sort of distilled and is described using Napoleon as a tool several times, but then also clearly as a Christ image. And that makes me wonder what Hugo thinks of Napoleon. <laughs> wonder what uh, what Hugo makes of that moment in his own country's history. If you take him just as a character, Napoleon, and you put him side by side with Jean Valjean, and you acknowledge that Hugo may be having the same conversation about human nature with both figures, the yeah. theme, the, the comparison between the two seems to be a recognition of genius, human genius, something in human nature and rationality, et cetera, maybe an enlightenment principle that recognizes the quality of man. Right. Mm. There's something elevated about this man and something genius that is recognized through the ages struggling with divine destiny, a clashing of man's will and God's will to, you know, drastic effects. I think we see that happen in a large scale with Napoleon and in a small scale repeatedly with Jean Valjean and again with Javert and again with Marius. Each one of the characters can demonstrate the same conflict, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with you about that. Here's, and this is maybe a totally random question and a change of subject, but what would you guys say, having read the entire novel about the distinction between men and women in Hugo's estimation with regard to that very idea? Are women pushing the course of history along from Hugo's perspective, or are they the beneficiaries of, or either, or the victims of men pushing history along? Oh, man. I think Hugo makes them victims mostly. Mm -hmm. I think he uses them to illustrate a suffering. But in Eponine's case, she also is a poignant voice and in that way gets the attention of strong movers and shakers in the story Mm. and alters the course of events that way. 
So I don't think he says that they're they're helpless, but he mm-hmm. does paint them as victims and representations of suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She does save, she is kind of a Christ figure in that she saves Marius's life. Mm-hmm. And Marius would not have been able to do what he did if she had not stepped in. It's interesting. He seems to, there's like, there's, that's such a, that's such a tricky question because we've been, I mean, everyone listening to this podcast knows what we think of Cosette. But, uh, <laughs> silly, silly, is, vapid little Cosette. <laughs> is he seems torn between a real world desire to lift women up and educate them and give them the place that they may not necessarily have uh, so that they can be movers and shakers in the world mm-hmm. and women as as an ideal that does push history forward but because men are working in the service of their idealized vision of them a la Beatrice and I think that kind of mirrors two planes in the novel that that are carried out throughout the the real the gritty suffering of characters like Fantine and Jean Valjean and then this ideal realm that sits over the top of the novel in the love story of Marius and Cosette and the ideas of the grandfather those mm-hmm. two worlds seem to be clashing throughout the or I don't know if clashing yeah. is the right word no, but rubbing up against like, each other. Do you remember the image way back there, thousands of pages back, of the <laughs> um, of the nunnery or the what is it called, the abbey? Oh yeah, I don't, I don't remember yeah. what phrase he uses. Convent. Um, there's a like a antechamber or a vestibule before you get to the the holy cloister where all mm-hmm. the nuns are living, mm-hmm. and in the vestibule, it's dark. It's isolated. It's cold. There are all kinds of words that are uh, aggressively negative. And then in the cloister, there's peace and virtue and this kind of heavenly realm. Yeah. He says at one point, this world is the vestibule of another and in Mm. it, no one is happy. Mm. I think that that might be the clashing that you're talking about here in the world. There's suffering and coldness and, you know, the he's really recognizing the state of of femininity and that looks like Fontaine. The yeah. the role of women is dark and bleak in the world that he sees. But it's the vestibule of another world where happiness is possible and an ultimate virtue and an ideal lives that we aspire to. And that might be the Beatrice image. I see him putting the two side by side and implying some kind of path or transition from one to another that's ultimately hopeful. It's realistic. It recognizes what his world is really like, but it's hopeful also. Yeah, that's really good. I completely agree. So so what is the mechanism then that he outlines? And it doesn't have to be one thing, but what's yeah. the mechanism that takes us from the vestibule where there is suffering and coldness and loneliness into a world full of light and companionship and peace? Well, you guys may have a different answer, but from my understanding of the reading, he offers two two paths forward or two mechanisms. I like that word, duty and love. And he mm. clarifies there's a difference between the two, but one leads to the other. Mm. If you are fulfilling your duty or accepting your duty, that will lead you to more opportunities to love the people around you and love as a transcendent. I wonder if that has a parallel to 
the political discussion and the individual discussion that he has or the personal discussion that he has in the story he breaks several times and and outlines his kind of socialist idea of what a society could possibly look like and the ills of society and yet we can't escape characters like Tenardier, who given everything that he wants in the end still does not create for himself a happier wholesome life and Jean Valjean who is born into terrible suffering and is put upon by his society and yet overcomes those odds in order to create more love more more beauty around him and he's the one who reaches down and picks Cosette up out of uh, out of the cycle of becoming Fantine again, right? She was, it was like, there's a cycle that can't be escaped. But once the bishop blesses Jean Valjean and forgives him and sets him free, Jean Valjean starts a chain reaction where he reaches into that cycle and and breaks Cosette out of it. And now Cosette is married to Marius and there's a new, there's a new cycle that is beginning that began on the individual level instead of on the political level. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. That's connected in my mind to, and this is a question that you actually sent along, Emily, and I wonder what your thoughts are. If there is a distinction between progress and politics, clearly, I think we all agree that even if he's got political opinions, even if he's kind of a nationalist, even you know, despite all the things that he says about this era preparing for the era to come and education and enlightenment ideas, he's more interested in talking about the human beings and, mm-hmm. and duty and love, as Megan put it, which I think is a great summary. But when he does turn to politics, it's clear that his goal is to describe the way that humanity can lift itself out of the muck and to describe how in community we can rise above the darker devils of our nature. Is there a distinction between that kind of progress and the political sphere for him? Yeah, that's tricky. I I think it's interesting that he never, he doesn't necessarily prescribe action. There's a lot of description. It was a little confusing. There was a long time that we really couldn't put our finger on what he thought because he was entertaining a lot of the French ideals. It's almost like the entire history of the governments that France has put on have mm-hmm. been necessary or uh, helpful in some ways, harmful in others. And that maybe, maybe that's not the point. And maybe the point is this, this individual relationship. And that's what has to seep into the, the political realm. And he's not necessarily prescribing, you know, that uh, monarchy versus like, although I do think he would say democracy is the, is the ideal. Um, I think but that's because it prioritizes the individual and their, their own action in society. Right. You're right. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree that his prescriptions, if he gives any are vague, they're more uh, ideological than they are. Choose this way, choose this, yeah. uh, this political regime, this will save this will save the world. He right. says things like progress is immense. It is to dare. All sublime conquests are the rewards of daring. And you think, what? What, what does that mean? Or he says, the great universal evil is ignorance. The only social peril is darkness. That seems to imply enlightenment ideas. They will save the world. But vague, you know, it's not a specific democracy. Democracy will save the world. Right. Or like he does like 
So we build schools. Like, what does that mean? What is like that leaves open the question of what is an education? Right. And because he doesn't say something like, well, we need to let women into schools or we need to build women's colleges or we need to educate the poor. Uh, I There's a very real possibility that one of the ways to dispel ignorance is simply love, right? Love that it's, yeah, love your neighbor. It's the, it's the education of individual experience. Mm-hmm. It's the, in, in many cases, it's the education of a suffering experience. Well, yeah. One of the, my favorite lines in the book, he says, humanity is similarity. All men are made of the same clay. It seems to be that progress or daring would be to look at your neighbor and acknowledge a similarity with him. Right. Look at your neighbor and say, you are like this. And that similarity draws forth empathy and compassion and, you know, love. Yeah, I that I love that idea, Megan. And I think that that this is why he begins the novel with the bishop. Because mm-hmm. the bishop, like Emily said, starts that in our story by looking at this convict who has who has recently mm-hmm. stolen again after escaping from prison or what have you. And and he does exactly what you're talking about. He says, oh, right. you and me, we're the same. We are absolutely the same, which mm-hmm. means that we are both living in a world where God is more than just. And mm-hmm. I, for me, that line hangs over the entire, the entire novel. God is more than just. And it implies pretty much everything that he wants to say about, about this mechanism that we're discussing, about how humanity is going to thrive if it is. Do you guys mind if I read a little sermonette from the bishop from the very, very beginning of our novel? I think it's uh, we all the questions that we have asked, um, all the confusions that we've had about political issues and ideological issues. I, I just think it's super interesting that here, this is page 13 uh, at the very beginning and to put it all and he chose to start this way, talking of the bishop. It says, he behaved the same with the rich as with the poor. He condemned nothing hastily or without taking account of circumstances. He would say, let's see how the fault crept in. Being, as he smilingly described himself, an ex-sinner, he had none of the inaccessibility of a rigid moralist and would boldly profess without the raised eyebrows of the ferociously virtuous, a doctrine that might be loosely summarized as follows. Man has a body that is both his burden and his temptation. He drags it along and gives into it. He ought to watch over it, keep it in bounds, repress it, and obey it only as a last resort. It may be wrong to obey it even then, but if so, the fault is venial. It is a fall, but a fall unto the knees, which may end in prayer. To be a saint is the exception. To be upright is the rule. Err, falter, sin, but be upright. To commit the least possible sin is the law for man. To live entirely without sin is the dream of an angel. Everything on this earth is subject to sin. Sin is like gravity. When he heard people raising a hue and cry easily, finding fault, oh ho, he would say with a smile. It would seem that this is a great crime that everyone commits. See how an offended hypocrisy is quick to protest and run for cover. (laughs) There's so much in there, but... For, uh, one of the first things that stuck out to me is uh, to be a saint is the exception. To be upright is the rule. Air fault or sin, but be upright. And we see society crushing 
so many people that like all these all these characters are being tempted to to lay down and it's when they stand upright like a man air falters sin that's not that's okay that doesn't mean that you're not standing upright but but be upright that's what matters i think that's an interesting distinction yeah on the following page after a quick discourse on ignorance being the root of society's ills hugo gives us this clearly the bishop had his own strange way of judging things i suspect he acquired it from the gospels (laughs) (laughs) which is just awesome (laughs) but yeah i think that's that is to your point yeah there i mean there's a lot of romantic ideology in the novel about how i mean even in the line megan read that that the fault of everything has to do with darkness and if we just we just educated people everything would be okay but when you put that side by side with what the bishop is saying here i wonder if in that statement hugo is not talking about a sinlessness on man's part you know sin falter error but but be upright and education of whatever variety leads to uprightness and sin we sin against each other we're going to have to figure that out on a interpersonal level um i think of marius looking at jean valjean and saying you didn't tell the whole truth right (laughs) um yeah but that's not the point uh the point is to be compassionate to to identify with one another and and allow others to stand upright right i love the idea i'm just reading more closely the passage that you read out loud the idea that a fall on the part of a man is a fall to his knees that may end in prayer and then the line that comes after is sin is like gravity i love the concept that humanity is all the same sin drags you to your knees and there's an opportunity on your knees there's an opportunity for prayer and recognition of your neighbor and love for God and for for the other that would be transcendent, would take you through that vestibule that we mentioned into something hopeful, into something luminous, right? Which implies that the darkness is not just sin, but also suffering. It's the that moment on your knees. Something brought you there and it's humbling and painful and uncomfortable and and hopeful, I think he's saying. That reminds me of the many, many times we see Jean Valjean and kind of like gravity, the pull of gravity is a great way to explain, for example, the confusion of mind that he swirls around before deciding to go reveal himself as mm-hmm. as the real Jean Valjean and, and save Jean Matthew. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, the same thing, we get a little bit of the same thing when he's trying to decide to take up his real name again and uh, not be Vauchelevo anymore. He's being drugged down to a fall on his knees and he stands upright at the end of it. Yeah. I love that. And it's, it isn't again, to your point that he does it right. The effect of his actions is to create a noble character and a self-sacrificial person and an image of Christ in the novel. But like Marius says, well, you didn't tell the whole truth, right? Like he, there is a distinction between uprightness and perfection. And I, I think Hugo is gentle He's gentle with his characters and he's gentle with his reader. There's this deep understanding of what it is to be a human being in the fallen world. And I think that's what one of the things for me that makes this novel so moving is that I, I feel seen by the way that Hugo writes in my own mm-hmm. struggles. And what he's saying to me is 
uprightness is defined by honesty. I mean, if you think about it, the whole the whole novel is about Valjean repeatedly walking out into the light when there are really, really good, understandable, justifiable reasons not to. I mean, that is as gospel-oriented a principle as as you can find. I love walking that. Walking in the light. That makes me to go back to something Megan said earlier, this contrast between the Napoleon and the Christ. If if Jean Valjean was only a Christ figure, I don't think we'd like him very much. Agreed. <laughs> I mean, but he's also Napoleon. And by the end of the novel, he's he meets his Waterloo, I think. There's two sides to every decision that he makes. And they're noble on the one hand, and it's honest, and it's he's doing the best he can with the lights that he has. Uh, And then it's always tainted with sin. He has mistaken Cosette for the God that gave her to him. And Mm -hmm. he refuses to believe the the bishop's word over him as, as a free man. He, in many ways, is like a Napoleon trying to create his own little empire. And it's only when he, he really, really doesn't come full circle he, his character isn't fully developed until the end when he's overthrown and it's a it's a happy defeat in the end yeah that i yeah that makes me think about the the word the concept of deliverance and there's forgiveness offered to him by the bishop in the beginning but nothing about his circumstances is altered all that much i mean he isn't sent back to prison so practically i suppose I suppose that's true, but this is a journey for Valjean towards real deliverance, and there are reversals everywhere along the path. And I think it's interesting what you just said, Emily, that 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 kind of deliverance comes through giving up in the end, through some sort of radical submission and a deep sigh of, I can't do this anymore. I wonder, that's interesting, I wonder if that giving up is connected somehow to Jean Valjean's quest for a name in the story. Mm. I thought it was interesting when we were reading along at the very beginning that, uh, what is his name? Uh, the, the priest guy. What is his name? Uh, <laughs> uh, what shoot, is the priest could... guy's name? You know what I mean? Like All I can think is Monsieur <laughs> Madeleine, and that's not right. That's one of Jean Valjean's many. I can't believe it. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, whoever he is. The yeah, there it is. Bienvenue. <laughs> Interesting. Bienvenue. The Bishop of Dean. Welcome. Yep. Yeah, the Bishop of Dean. So what he says about names at the very beginning seems to offer Jean Valjean a chance of deliverance. He basically opens the door to an ultimate identity and hands it to Jean Valjean at the beginning of our novel. And this is what he says. Why would I have to know your name? Before you told me, I knew it. Your name is my brother. And a little further down, Christ's house doesn't ask any guest his name, but whether he has an affliction. You are suffering. You are hungry and thirsty. You are welcome. And I think that Jean Valjean may reject that at the beginning and try on a bunch of names and identities throughout the whole story as he searches for a way to clean himself up. Yeah. But I wonder for enoughness. If he would, yeah. I wonder if he would agree. I wonder if he ends with Monsieur Bienvenu's name, you know, just, I'm a brother. I am welcome in God's house. I am, I don't know, a, a common sufferer. What do you guys think about that? Well, that makes sense of the fact that the bishop is the one who welcomes him at the, he, 
at the end of the novel, he stands face to face with the bishop because maybe he finally does have a face, the face of Jean Valjean. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Do you want a priest? I have one. Right. That was, man, what a powerful moment. Well, yeah, because on the one hand, it made me think that, you know, Monsieur Bienvenu from the beginning of the novel, here he is, and he's waiting to anticipate Jean Valjean, but Christ is also the high priest. Mm-hmm. And that might be an acceptance in the end of of his uh, his state as delivered. Which isn't to discount the fact that throughout the novel, he's used as a Christ figure for other people repeatedly. Right. Uh, he His names are valuable to other people. He does good things with them. Mm-hmm. But they don't give him peace, right? Okay. You know? No, because because being someone else's deliverer is not what gives a human being peace. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a word of belonging and acceptance and affirmation. Mm-hmm. I like that, though. The emphasis is ultimately there has to be a divine word. But in the meantime, your services to other to other brothers are helpful. I think of that that uh, iconic scene where Jean Valjean grabs Cosette's hand in the woods Mm. and he is her savior in that moment. But later on, it's described that he has his hand in someone else's. So he's holding onto her and God's holding onto him. And it's like a chain effect of, well, what would you call that? I guess just love and and care. Makes me cry. That's what I would call it. (laughs) I guess providence is the word I'm looking for. A trickle effect of, of a providential hand. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, which goes back to the conversation of, I think that's the solution that he offers us for the 19th century and and every century. And that the that I can kind of see that same image, the hand in hand in hand, working its way down the centuries as the 18th century steps forward in the voice oh, of yeah. uh, Guy Normand. And he says, you know, this is what this is what we had to offer. Um, these were the things that were valuable to us. I like I passed them on to you, and they're re- like they need to be reborn for the 19th mm. century. But don't don't discount them. Like, take here, take my hand, and uh, I'll pull you into the next century. Yeah, isn't that a, a Bible verse? You'll you'll uh, take them by the hand and lead them where they don't want to go. Um, <laughs> about the the young and the old. That's kind of a fun association. <laughs> well, and it's it's also given a great interpretation in that particular part of the story because initially he doesn't want to go where Marius is going. He disagrees with him vehemently, but the presence of broken relationship that is restored by repentance and suffering causes him to be overjoyed to go where Marius is going. And that's uh, Hugo does that over and over again in with different characters in different situations. There is a oh, what is the line from from Hopkins, Megan? I can't remember the adjective, but something like a dear freshness, deep down things. That's so true of Hugo. And and the backdrop of the entire story is that kind of reconciliation and and the freedom that comes with being yourself in a room where it is safe to be so. That's where Jean Valjean ends up in the in the die in his dying moments, quite literally. He finds himself in a room where it is safe to be, to be himself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is. It's um. It's a little bit dazzling, the turn at the end of Jean Valjean's life and the the relief and satisfaction that he finds the moment Cosette turns the corner and comes into the room right before he dies, 
And he says, I hadn't believed it. I hadn't believed it of God. How foolish of me that he wouldn't have brought her in this moment. Oh my goodness. That's just the most moving scene in the whole thing. But it reminded me of um, Monsieur Bienvenu at the beginning saying, I don't study God. I'm dazzled by him. Mm. I can't explain this in a rational way. This is an experience that's dazzling to my senses. It's a, it's a relationship. It's a, it's a salvific love, you know? So uh, when all of it's maybe by contrast that it's so dazzling because we also have characters like Ptolemies and Javert and Thenardier who are, I mean, how would you guys describe the, the difference of attitude? And, And if the, if the dazzling brightness is what's pulling the century forward, what are the things holding it back? That is a fantastic question. It's got to be two things, I think, and maybe there's more, but the two that stick out to me immediately are ignorance. Um, and that's where his political axe comes in and he starts to grind it is we need to educate everyone because if you are undereducated, you are going to end up poor and miserable. But I, like we've been saying, I'm, I'm not sure that's his main point. I think the other thing that he points out in Javert's character is that human beings are in their fallen nature, addicted to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that, that we are ethical addicts and we are obsessed with the justice of God and the injustice of the world. And Hugo offers us a corrective to that. I mean, he says, accept real peace and real relationship for a society and for an individual is not down to the justice of God. It's down to his mercy. I think it's interesting, given that Hugo is so on about ignorance being the great ill of the society, that um, the first villain that we meet, Ptolemies, is actually overeducated in the traditional sense of the word. He he waxes eloquent for pages in that speech that he gives before they abandon, you know, before he abandons the mother of his child. Yeah. He waxes philosophically eloquent and what do you think that says about it is Ptolemies ignorant in some way still, even though he, he can talk circles around his companions and, and name yeah. drop philosophies. And that is, that's a great question too. I, I, am sorry. I'm just answering all of them here. You put up a question. <laughs> I'm just going to smack it down, but, um, but no, I love, I love that line of, of reasoning. And I think it's that he's not just talking about book learning. He's talking about suffering that's the kind of of education that all men need to understand this the statement god is more than just ptolemaeus has had no suffering he's wealthy and he has no responsibilities refuses to take any on and so he's fundamentally ignorant of the real currency of relationship which is shared suffering bearing one another's burdens in my mind that's the kind of ignorance that hugo is trying to eradicate I think so too. We talked way back at the beginning in our podcast. I think it was the first episode about the little epigram that exists right before the story begins. Uh-huh. And you could do a close reading of it and and have a very fruitful conversation. But at the very end, he says, so long as ignorance and misery remain on earth, there should be a need for books such as this. That seems to be his stated project to educate his fellow man or his brother on the ignorance and misery in the earth and inculcate some kind of education, like you're saying, but maybe education and compassion are synonymous. 
Yes. That's super well put. Yeah. He chose, he didn't choose to write a work of, of political philosophy. This Mm -hmm. is not an economic work. This is not a socialist tract. This is a piece of fiction, you know, and what fiction does for you is makes real and fleshes out an idea with personality and emotion and weakness and suffering and makes it human, makes an idea human. Yeah, it's incarnational. Mm-hmm. Takes an idea and puts flesh on it. Megan, the question that occurs to me when you bring up the epigram at the beginning, yeah. is that what that's called, by the way, an epigram? I don't know. I threw that out there. Just sort of threw that out there. I've never really been sure right. whether, ep- where, which is epigram, which, which is, is epilogue. Which, which is, is epigraph? <laughs> epigraph? Is, it, is I mean... epigraph? Is it is epigraph? <laughs> it's definitely not epi- an epilogue because that's chart? afterward. No, that's Eulogy? <laughs> Is this, a, you, is this a prologue? You googly? Um, <laughs> no, the question that I have is, I'm just going to read it again. So long as ignorance and misery remain on earth, there should be a need for books such as this. We've been on about the idea that suffering breeds compassion. Is there a distinction in Hugo's mind between misery and suffering? And what is the distinction? That's a really good, that's a really good question. Between misery and suffering? Yeah. And I, I don't think it's a distinction without a difference. Like I, I'm, I'm starting to, I'm starting to think that that gets to the heart of, of his project. It makes me think of Jean Valjean at the end before describing himself before Cosette shows up saying, I am, I was very miserable. I was very miserable. Yeah. Hmm. But has he escaped being one of the miserables, even though he has faced great suffering? Yeah. I I wonder if it has something to do with, with faith. And maybe with duty also, there's something self-conscious about suffering. On the one hand, it comes upon you, but to look at it as suffering instead of misery implies a lack of wallowing, a a shouldering of that in a dutiful way and in a faithful way. But I'm just thinking of that scene. He says in the past tense, I was very miserable, implying I'm not anymore. He's still dying. All his physical problems are still there. Yep. What has changed? What made the misery into a suffering that's transformative? It was the presence of someone that he loved, but he actually, I wish I could find the scene. He, it's not just that Cosette is there. It's what her presence says to him about the nature of God. Yeah. That transforms his misery into a suffering that's selfific. You know, he basically says, I hadn't believed it of God that he would be merciful this way. And he is. And so I'm no longer miserable. You know, Mm. that makes me think that there's like two critical moments for characters and, uh, and our listeners have suggested that Marius experiences this as well. And I think I agree, but I was struck reviewing the novel by how Jean Valjean, when he's faced with Bishop's forgiveness, the internal dialogue that he has with himself is very, very similar in its phrasing to what Javert says, uh, to the kinds of things that Javert has to wrestle through when he experiences Jean Valjean's merciful gift of his life back to him, uh, even though it it defies the rules of, of the world and the both men stand before the abyss in that moment and Jean Valjean is able to accept I, what is it it's like a it's like a 
humiliation of sorts that results in a great dignity and Javert chooses the smaller dignity over over he chooses to be miserable mm-hmm. yeah and Jean Valjean chooses to suffer mm-hmm It makes me think of Paris as he described it in two ways. He said, on the one hand, Paris is immense, which makes you like lift your eyes. The idea of immensity is something towering over you, right? Paris is immense, but also Paris has this, uh, this chasm underneath it, this cloaca of sewers. (laughs) Cloaca. We did. I had to work in there. I actually was thinking, how can I make the word cloaca come into this last? But Javert is our character who stands on the precipice. On the one hand, he's, he's standing on a bridge and up above him is the sky and it's full of stars. Right. But below him is the river and it's dark and uh, lightless and it's, you know, it's a chasm and he chooses to dive into the chasm. And even the description of that moment it's it there are sensory descriptions of it being like uh well it's like a sewer it's described as dark and cold and smelly and disgusting and like Mm -hmm. a cesspool and he chooses to dive down instead of look up and i wonder if our conversation about duty and love and misery is all wrapped up in that moment i mean there's so many moments you could say that about but well yeah and the the other one that's obviously parallel to it is Valjean choosing to go down into the little, the literal sewer. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that moment, the distinction is he's doing it in order to save Marius's life, right? There, it is a dedication to duty, which is hurting him, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's delivering a young man that he firmly believes is going to ruin his life and steal his daughter. And, but he does he it out, hates of, him. out yeah. of a sense. Yeah, he hates him, but he does it out of a sense of duty. And so his descent into the pit, into the cloaca, as you say, Megan, his I descent is 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 dutiful, uh, and it makes it suffering instead of misery. But the whole thing is kind of breaking my brain because Javert absolutely chooses to go down and not look up, and yet he loves the stars. He the stars are kind of representative of what have defined his his life, and it sends him down. And then at, at Jean Valjean uh, doesn't have stars at the end, which we talked about in our last episode. You're so right. But Javert only loves the stars when they're attainable. He only loves the stars when they're a representation of what he thinks he is in terms of yeah. perfection, right? Yeah, no, that's the, true. The goal is to be a little god. And when he finds that he cannot be, he'd rather not see the stars ever again. Whoa. It hit hard. It hits harder when you put it that way, Megan. <laughs> <Goodness gracious. laughs> no, I got you. Didn't I get you? <laughs> you got me just then. No. That is really true. And again, um, with the parallels, we, we talked about them being foils throughout the whole novel. So this is news to no one, but Valjean dies on a starless night. Yeah. Which makes me wonder if we're talking about the kind of education that Hugo is on about again, and that it has less to do with development of the intellect and more to do with the flourishing of the soul. By candlelight. Yeah. 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 I love that. Whoa, it's also, by candlelight. Yes, I love that. The idea of the stars being gone that that moment. If the stars are associated with Javert's character, and Javert's Javert's character is justice, right? Justice personified. Mm-hmm. Then at the moment of Jean Valjean's death, God is more than just. He's merciful and close instead of distant and holy and 
apart. You know, mm, I like yeah. that. So that was the theme of Jean Valjean's storyline. And here it is. I was laughing a minute ago because as I was considering Javert choosing misery instead of the immensity of God's nature being more than justice. I, all I could think of was Marilla Cuthbert um, <laughs> saying, from Anne of Green Gables uh, saying, Anne, to despair is to turn your back on God. On God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but Marilla read this story with me. And she <laughs> uh, oh, my goodness. You guys, what a what an awesome discussion! I'm so I could not have chosen two better companions to read this novel with. I'm so grateful <laughs> for both of you. Just think your insights are so helpful. Uh, in our last episode, Ian, you told us that you wanted us to come with a what was it? Well, yeah, I was oh, yeah. I was going to introduce that now. I think I want to end our I want to end our wrap up episode by asking you to choose the funniest moment in the novel from your perspective, and then what, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do the other one. Uh, <laughs> maybe the most touching moment. Although I feel like we've been discussing the most touching moments. I think I already gave you my touching moments. Yeah, yeah me too. So let's ju- let's just choose the funniest. Let's end on a high <laughs> note with Hugo and and choose the funniest line that you can remember. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll go first because I have mine all ready to go. The scene that I thought was the funniest actually is a couple sentences. Is it okay if I read it? Yeah, that's great. Go ahead. Okay, so it was the description of Tenardier's wife, otherwise known as the Tenardiess. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of the greatest character descriptions that I remember. (laughs) Everything trembled at the sound of her voice, windows and furniture, as well as people. (laughs) Her broad face was covered with freckles like the holes in a skimming ladle. She had a beard. She had the look of a market porter dressed in petticoats. She swore splendidly. She prided herself on being able to crack a nut with her fist. Apart from the novels she'd read, which at times produced odd glimpses of the affected lady under the ogress, it would never have occurred to anyone to say, that's a woman. This Tenardiess <laughs> was a cross between a whore and a fishwife. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Goodness gracious, Victor. Jeez. Fired, Victor. Ooh, that it would is never have occurred brutal. to anyone to say, that's a woman. <laughs> that is brutal you took that question in like a way better sense than i took it like that was i don't even want to follow that uh, i don't know if i can i'll try though i will try because i i thought the moment when hugo is describing cosette doing her toilette oh yeah that's and mine too. says to the says to the reader we shouldn't enter here but, but I will. Gonna. But may I? But may I? I shouldn't. But may I? And then he goes may ahead I? and does it anyway. That was yeah. so funny to me. Megan actually highlights the fact that Hugo is actually funny. Like he's yeah. there's funny. A, there's like a Dickensian character humor yes. in yep. what he does, which is true. But I also was thinking, not quite what you were thinking, Ian, but the same scene where Cosette, as a virgin, blushes to look on her own nakedness. Like, <laughs> like Hugo didn't even know any women. Like this, this man clearly, does not this know man does women. not know a <laughs> Which human woman. True. Like I've heard, I know for a fact it isn't true. Oh. <laughs> clearly, this artist has never seen a human baby. Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, you two, I have enjoyed this tremendously. Thank you for reading along with me and thank you listeners for reading along with us. 
if we could pull it off, it's a busy time around here, but if we could pull it <laughs> off, we are going to try and give you one more episode oh, um, yeah. that finally goes ahead and rather than in a uh, restrained way, in a completely full way, dive into the musical treatment of this. And novel. I just want to say, like, I feel like people are going to be like, oh, you guys have been talking about it the whole time. What's the point of listening? But I'm really excited to talk about something that I feel like I've never really gotten a chance to talk with anyone at length. Mm. And I feel like you guys will be a great, a great opportunity for throwing this around. I love the way, so if people going into watching the musical think of this, I love the way that the different, um, he tells, or he like engages with the thematics of the story by connecting different musical numbers melodically that you wouldn't expect they're just the he ties things together that don't seem to to go together at all and i can't wait to talk about that yeah i agree i think that's going to be awesome well friends until next time around happy reading bon happy appetit. reading bon appetit want to follow along with our reading you can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode how to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.